It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. A telling tech tussle is going on down under. Australian authorities have drawn up plans to extract money from giants such as Facebook and Google for linking to news websites. It's a battle long in the making that may set a global precedent. And there's one thing dominating the public discourse in Egypt these days. Filthy baked goods. News of some risque cakes went very, very viral earlier this month, and the reaction reveals a lot about how the country is being run. But first... While the likes of America and Britain are racing ahead with vaccine programs, most of the 27 member states of the European Union have barely left the starting blocks. To date, the EU has vaccinated just under 2% of its population. In Britain, it's more than 10%, and in America, 6 And after that sluggish start, the bloc looks like it'll be further hampered by a cut to supply. AstraZeneca and Pfizer-BioNTech have both said production problems will preclude them from meeting the expected numbers. The EU says it will tighten export controls and is threatening legal action. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, urged the companies to meet their promises. Europe invested billions to help develop the world's first COVID-19 vaccines, to create a truly global common good. And now the companies must deliver. They must honor their obligations. AstraZeneca has defended its efforts, partly blaming the EU for delays in signing the contract. The EU, for its part, hasn't yet approved the AstraZeneca vaccine. That's expected to happen on Friday, a month behind Britain. The European Commission had set a goal of inoculating 70% of Europe's adults by the summer. It's a target that looks increasingly unlikely. I think the best way to describe how Europe is progressing with its vaccination program is sporadically. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. Each European country has delegated all the buying, uh, the distribution of vaccines and the authorization for them to European authorities, which means that each country ought to be at the same point. But if you actually look at what's happening on the ground, that's not the case. It's a very patchy picture. And why is that? Well, you're dealing with 27 different health systems, and health is something that is not managed at the European level. It's managed by each country. Each of those systems different. They tend to be quite centralised in some cases. If you take France, that would be a good example. Or decentralised, as in Germany. And each system has its you know, benefits in some cases. During the early months of the pandemic last year, it was actually thought to have helped Germany to have such a decentralised system. But now 
Germany seems to be finding it difficult to get out the vaccine. That's starting to look like a disadvantage. So it really is this patchwork of different health systems and different campaigns that I think explains the differences across the continent. Rather than anything logistical or plain mistakes being made. Well, it's quite hard at this point to start talking about mistakes being made. There are clearly supply issues, and that is something that has come right to the top of the agenda for the European Union this week. So there is a lot of complaints about delays to the Pfizer vaccine that was already known. There are now concerns about delays to the AstraZeneca vaccine, which hasn't actually even been approved yet by the European Medicines Agency. That's expected to happen very shortly. So there are supply issues. There are also logistical issues in some countries. It's certainly been very difficult as everyone is discovering the distribution of of the Pfizer vaccine is complicated, but it's not beyond the capacity of countries. It depends a lot in uh, in how well they were organised in advance and how pragmatic they've been able to be in responding to the sort of bottlenecks that are appearing in their distribution systems. And in what countries have have all of these difficulties focused the, the hardest, do you think? Well, it's sometimes quite surprising. One of the countries that has taken a really long time to get its act together of the vaccination programme is actually France, which is thought of as having this fabulously efficient health system, which costs them a lot, but on the whole is in normal times extremely effective. But actually, France has been one of the slowest countries to get its vaccination programme rolling out. I visited the vaccination centre in a town called Poissy, which is about 30 kilometres outside Paris which was the first vaccination centre to open outside a a care home or a hospital in France. And in fact, what really struck me talking to the mayor there and about how he'd gone about opening this centre was that in order to get round the rules imposed by an extremely bureaucratic centralised system, you've got to take the initiative, you've got to keep hitting the phones, you've got to call up, you've got to say we're ready, please give us authorization, and we will start vaccinating. Because otherwise you'll find that a lot of people on the ground are just waiting or at least are used to waiting for instructions to come down from on high. And what I saw in Poissy was the exact opposite of that and how actually people on the ground can make a difference if governments are able to sort of incorporate them into the process. And what about the wider picture in Europe, the reaction to the evident slowness, the complicated nature of the rollout so far? I think there is an increasing sense that Europe has to get its act together and needs to now respond and to step up its vaccination programme. But there are various problems. One of them is the supply. That's now being dealt with at the European Commission level. So there are some pretty tense conversations going on with the pharma companies involved. And then on the ground, it's a question of trying to contain the impatience and also the sense of exhaustion among a lot of European populations. We've seen that with in the Netherlands, for example, where there's been rioting in response to the imposition of a curfew in the evening. France has been under a curfew since the middle of December. That means every single night people are supposed to be in their homes now by 6pm in the evening. And I think that there's a sort of very difficult management of expectations for political leaders at the moment, trying to balance on the one hand this sense that there is light at the end of the tunnel with vaccines, but equally trying to get the people to to sort of get through these next weeks and months, which are going to be extremely difficult while waiting for those vaccines to come online. But even with the best will of the world, you still need to have the vaccines. And and you mentioned that there is some question around supply now. 
Yes, absolutely. And that's why these discussions that are taking place this week between the European Commission and in particular both Pfizer but also AstraZeneca are going to be so important. There's a sense of deep frustration that the orders that have been placed by the European Commission, which thought that it was acting on behalf of, in a sense of sort of solidarity on behalf of all its 27 member states, in ordering these vaccines and making sure that they could guarantee the supply on a fair basis to every country that that's now in jeopardy because AstraZeneca says it won't be able to deliver as expected. The EU is considering whether to retaliate with export restrictions on the Pfizer vaccine, which is produced in Belgium, one of the EU member states. And this could get quite nasty in the sense that vaccine nationalism, which is something we haven't seen until now, could be beginning to rear its head. Sophie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. My view is that it's inevitable that the digital giants will be paying for original content. And the choice for Australia is we can be world leaders as we are with our report. It's a battle between the world's biggest tech giants and the world's smallest continent. Last Friday, Google threatened to withdraw its search services from Australia if a new media code is passed into law by the country's parliament. The code would force platforms such as Google and Facebook to pay Australian news publishers whose content they choose to display. This won't be the last round of the fight, nor is Australia the only place where the tech giants are under pressure to pay up. And that puts a foundational principle of the internet in question. In the past few days, the government of Australia has been trading threats and insults with Google and Facebook. Tim Cross is The Economist's technology editor. We've seen... Google say that this law is so bad that it would have to remove its search engine entirely from the Australian market. If this version of the code were to become law, it would give us no real choice but to stop making Google search available in Australia. Australians have fired back and said, well, we don't respond to threats. Australia makes our rules for things you can do in Australia. That's done in our parliament. It's done by our government. And that's how things work here in Australia. And people who want to work with that in Australia, you're very welcome. But we don't respond to threats. So what exactly is it then that's being proposed here by the Australian competition authorities? How would it work? So the basic idea is that Google and Facebook for now, and possibly other big internet companies in future, if they want to link to or use a big news publisher's story in some way, they have to negotiate with those publishers the right to do that, and they have to pay them some money. So this would be a big change to how the web works, where at the moment you can just link to whoever you want without paying any amount of money. And if the two sides can't agree on how much money should change hands, then the law says that the government will appoint an arbitrator. He'll look at the submissions from either side and make a final decision, which everyone is then stuck with. So why is this a question just around news providers, though, for all the things that Facebook and and Google publish on their platforms? 
Well, I guess there are two answers to that. There's the principled answer and the cynical answer. So the principled answer is that news companies have been having a pretty tough time of it basically ever since the internet took off. Ad revenues are down. Facebook and Google have captured a huge amount of those. They've mostly gone online. Journalism costs money and fewer and fewer people are willing to pay for it. Journalism is also, as this argument goes, a public good because we all want, you know, reliable, fact-based news about what's going on in the world. So if people aren't willing to pay for it, then the government's going to have to do something to make sure that it carries on. So that's the principled reason. The maybe slightly less principled reason, again, comes back to the money, which is that news publishers in particular tend to have the ear of politicians. You know, they write about them. Politicians care what newspapers think about them. So they're very, very well placed to lobby those politicians to do something about this. But this is a big change to the way the web has worked before, arguably the way the founders of the web wanted it to work, which is everything is free in all directions. Yes, exactly. So this is why you've seen people like Tim Berners-Lee, who was the scientist at CERN who created the protocols for what would eventually become the World Wide Web. He's intervened in this debate saying he thinks this is a bad idea because the whole point of the web was that you were free to link to anyone you wanted and anyone you wanted was free to link to you. If we carve out an exception for news publishers, then that breaks that fundamental assumption about how the internet works. And I think there's some force to that. And I'm sure Tim Berners-Lee is making the argument sincerely. I'm less sure about Facebook and Google, because of course, the other point of the internet in the early days was it was meant to be decentralized and everyone would have a voice. You know, it very much was not the idea of the early internet that it would be dominated by a handful of gigantic companies. Apart from the philosophical argument, the attempt to try to extract money in this way has been talked about for years and has to date gone really nowhere. That's right. So the most famous example was Spain a few years back, which passed a sort of broadly similar law that would have required Google to pay to link to news stories. Their response then was just to pull the Google News service from Spain entirely. But I don't think it's quite true to say that it hasn't gone anywhere, because the other thing that's happened in the last few days is that Google has agreed a private deal, we don't know the details of it, to pay some big French publishers to use their content. So this also kind of undermines some of the principled arguments, because the principle has now been conceded elsewhere. And of course, the companies themselves are perhaps in anticipation of, of being forced to do this by governments. They've created things. So Google has something called the News Showcase. Facebook has Facebook News. We should mention that The Economist is one of the companies that has signed up to these projects, in our case with Facebook. And the idea is the same thing here. They will pay news publishers to feature their stories. Um, the difference is that Google and Facebook create these things and set the terms rather than having them imposed on them by governments. But on the face of it, what's being proposed in Australia is somewhat more sweeping. I mean, what have Google and Facebook said about what's on the table there? Well, that's exactly what they say, yes, that the Australian law goes much further than the deal that was signed in France. And I think there is something to that. But I suppose the other thing to bear in mind is that this is a negotiation, right? It's being conducted in public, but this is a political negotiation. And there are certainly incentives and few downsides to starting with your biggest ask and then only compromising when you have to. So that's presumably why we've seen these big threats from the companies to do things like pull out of Australia entirely. It feels like some amount of this is for public consumption, and it may well be that the final deal, whatever it looks like, is a bit less radical than what's on the table now. And who do you think actually holds the cards here, though, the one with the regulatory power or the one with the actual market power? The internet is sort of grappling with the fact that the companies that dominate it They're based in the US, but they have global reach. And yet individual countries around the world have different laws about how all kinds of things that happen on the internet should happen. And the balance basically depends on the relative size of the actors. So when Spain says we'd like you to do something by itself, 
Google might feel able to say, well, no, we aren't going to do that because Spain is not a very big market. When the entire European Union, half a billion fairly rich consumers says, do something, then the price to Google or Facebook of saying no is much, much higher. So I guess the question is going to be, where does Australia fit in that pecking order? Thanks very much for joining us, Tim. Thanks, Jason. You can hear more from Tim on this week's episode of Money Talks, our sister show about business and finance. He's been reporting on big shifts in the semiconductor industry. In America, the chips are down, and China is fast catching up. And that has big implications for the global economy. Look for Money Talks wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. Earlier this month, a group of elderly women gathered at a posh sporting club in central Cairo for a birthday celebration. When the hosts brought out cupcakes with tiny decorations in the shape of male and female genitalia, alongside a buttocks-shaped cake, the partying women giggled and posed for photos, thinking nothing more of it. But the images ended up on Facebook, and then went viral. And it turns out that indecent cakes are no laughing matter for the country's conservative government. It seems like all of Egypt at this point has seen them. Everyone is commenting on them. It breaks the internet in Egypt. Eric Connect writes about Egypt for The Economist. For many average Egyptians, to see a bunch of grandmothers playing with these cakes in the park, it's shocking. So for the state, which is this very patriarchal state, they felt the need to respond. How so? What have they done? Well, almost immediately after the photos came out, the police tracked down the baker and they actually arrested her from her Cairo flat. During the interrogation, she apparently broke down in tears. She admitted to baking the cakes, but said that these were made specifically on request by the women who had actually sent her photos. The baker was released on bail of about $300, but now she's accused of insulting public decency. That's a serious charge in Egypt that can give you up to two years in prison. So this all sounds like a laughing matter, but for certain parts of the state who see it as their duty to police morality for the good of society, they take this very, very seriously. In the local press, it's being covered as if it's this national scandal. It's called the sexual cake incident, and they've got blurred out photos of the offending treats. The spokesman for the sports ministry, which oversees the Gazira Club, was interviewed, and he tried to assure viewers at home that this was going to be investigated and taken very seriously, and he even promised that everyone would be held accountable. I mean, do you see this kind of knee-jerk reaction in other ways? Is this a wider issue in society? Yeah, so over the past years, there's been a worrying number of people caught up in, in what you can call this dragnet of moral policing. And it's more often than not directed at women. So last year alone, there was this famous belly dancer arrested for indecent photos and sentenced to three years in prison. There was also several women arrested for these TikTok videos where they were basically just lip syncing, fully dressed. But these women got very, very famous. They were acquitted last week on the indecency charges, but they're still being held in prison on separate charges of human trafficking for promoting the use of the app for other girls as a platform to make money. Apparently in Egypt, that constitutes trafficking. But there was a moment last year when women's rights seemed to be getting a real boost. There was this burgeoning Me Too movement last year after several women started coming forward and exposing men for sexual violence. And it was really starting to gain momentum. But then one of the cases came after these very uh, wealthy group of men who are connected to powerful families. It all really got shut down very quickly. Several of the witnesses were actually arrested. And nowadays people are much less comfortable with coming forward. When it comes to this issue of moral policing, it is often women that are targeted for things that we would say are extremely tame, if not laughable. And and this really is a case in point. 
And with that backdrop, then, how do you see this particular case playing out? What makes this case quite interesting, you can say, is that these women are very much elites. So far, the women have only had their Gazira Club memberships taken away, which might seem harsh for them, but in the broader scheme of what happens in Egypt is mild. But the investigation is still ongoing. For these women, I do suspect it will end there. But in terms of the actual baker, who probably has far fewer connections, really, it's anyone's guess what's going to happen. But what about the bigger picture here? What, what does the indecent cake incident tell us about President Sisi's regime? President Abdel Fattah Sisi, he's seen by a lot of people as a more moderate leader than the Islamists he overthrew in a coup in 2013. This month, for example, a new parliament was sworn in. It has more female MPs than ever after they put in a 25% quota. The president's cabinet has about a quarter female representation. But cases like this show that CC state really isn't too much different in a lot of ways. Egypt has a way of really overreacting to somewhat petty offenses like this. So it's hard to speculate exactly where this will go. Eric, thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.